Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. If 2024 is the year we put AI into everything, it might also be the year we rethink how we power it. AI is ravenous for energy, and the creator of ChatGPT says we're going to need a breakthrough, maybe even an entirely new source of energy to support it. Just how much power does AI need? Here to help us understand the environmental impacts of artificial intelligence is Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me, Anna. So I uh, borrowed uh, the word ravenous from your headline in your great article, but AI takes a lot of power. And I'm hoping you can kind of explain why it takes so much energy to operate. AI is different than other kinds of computing that we're used to. You know, typically you do a Google search. We all think we're creative, but probably thousands or millions of other people have done that search. So that information can be cached, can be stored in memory in a computer that's relatively close to you, even though that's a data center that might be hundreds of miles distant. And copies of that data can be put all over the world. Every time you ask, let's say, ChatGPT a question, it has to think all over again, even if you're asking it the same question that other people have asked it. And on top of that, because it's a so-called large language model, it really is gigantic. And so just the amount of digital cogitation it has to do is really considerable. So this AI, every single time that we use it to generate an image or answer a query, or even you know summarize results in search, it is using a lot of power way more power than typical functions on a computer and in the cloud. So it is kind of like our brains, like I can be asked the same question over and over and over again, and I might, you know, be able to rattle off an answer that I've practiced, but I'm still thinking about it. There's still power going on in my brain to like put that back together again. Yeah, I would say it's even worse than that. I mean, I get asked the same questions over and over again, and <laughs> we come up with our pat responses. So. I think we're more efficient in the way we're constructed than these AIs are. And OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, said something at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, and it really caught my attention. He said that the future of artificial intelligence depends on an energy breakthrough, that there is, quote, no way to get there without a breakthrough. And, I mean, he, he's the guy who gave us chat GPT, so I feel like he would know. Yes, that is a bit self-serving. That's definitely true with current chips and the current way of making AI work. There are things on the horizon that are much more efficient. Like, let's keep in mind that we all have supercomputers between our heads and, uh, you know, they may consume 20% of the calories that we eat in a day, but that's still vastly less power than is required by these AIs. Yeah, so as AI, I guess, I don't want to say wakes up or maybe gets more like our actual human brains, maybe it'll get better at recalling those very common searches. It might. I mean, there's a lot of progress to be made here. I think the challenge is that to realize an AI that's energy efficient, it really has to work a lot more like our brains or like a biological system. So there are people working on this. It's called neuromorphic computing. But it really is kind of a bottom-up rethink of what computing means and how it works, and that's going to take decades. And Sam Altman is backing something called fusion. And 
I'm not going to get too far into the weeds, but fusion is how the sun powers itself. So it's when two lighter elements slam together and they form a heavier element, and that slamming creates energy. And unlike its cousin, fission, there's no radioactive waste at the end. So it's kind of like the ultimate renewable energy, and Altman's really invested in this, but it's not easy to do, right? Like, there's a reason we haven't done this to scale yet. We can fuse atoms in the lab, so you just push hydrogen atoms really close together. I'm grossly oversimplifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you just push those hydrogen atoms together, and you get fusion. Um, but no one's been able to do it in a way that produces more energy than you have to put into the system. He is backing, he has put a huge hundreds of millions of dollars of his personal fortune into what he thinks is the leading fusion startup, which shoots hydrogen atoms at one another, like particle accelerator. It's very different than the giant fusion reactor they're trying to build in Europe. And he has said, it's not just about AI for him. He's said, you know, all of economic development and human flourishing depends on having more access to cheap energy. So it, I think it's really a personal thing for him. Yeah, it's called helion energy. It's like, you know, like the sun trying to harness the power of the sun and replicate it here. But it could be, I mean, we could be decades away from something like this. So alternatively, I guess it's trying to find more renewable energy or trying to build more efficient AI systems. And I kind of wonder, like, generic AI models require much larger data sets and therefore much greater amounts of energy. Could we be seeing more specialized AI tools instead of big, broad, large language models? We definitely will. This is a big trend in the PC industry. Intel has announced that, you know, what's coming is the era of, you know, AI processors in our laptops, they're already in our phones and stuff. And they're doing kind of those, those magic tricks with our photos where they pick the best shot or automatically enhance things or, or, or like even background room. blur. Yes. But even just to get background blur on your iPhone, believe it or not, that's AI. So um, there's a lot more of these specialized models that are coming. Uh, but at this point, it's unclear whether that will just mean more AI everywhere uh, and, and we'll use more AI of every kind or whether that will actually start to, in any function, replace some of these energy-hungry large language models. And in your article, you compare it, you say that AI could end up needing as much energy as a small country. I mean, how how small are we talking? Like, how, how much energy could these models end up gobbling up? Not a tiny country. So, like, the Netherlands. Okay. <laughs> which is a, a very highly developed country with a lot of electric vehicles. It's a lot of power. It's a so small, ge smaller uh, geographically than the United States, but not, like... Yeah. Okay. One and a half to two percent of all of the, our energy use. Let's put it this way. One projection that I heard from an energy company was that in 10 years, this is going to be using much more energy than is required to charge all of the electric vehicles that are projected to exist in the U.S. at that time. Oh, my goodness. So what what happens if we don't have the infrastructure to meet this demand? I mean, I don't think we'd be doing rolling blackouts. Like, like what do we do? <laughs> That's such a terrible thought. Somebody asked chat GPT a question and there's a brownout somewhere. <laughs> um, 
So companies are preparing. Microsoft is contra contracted with Sam Altman's uh, Fusion startup to start providing power sometime in the next 10 years. We should all be skeptical that that's going to arrive on time. Uh, but Microsoft is also doing things like contracting with Constellation Energy uh, for nuclear power oh, um, and is thinking about using AI to accelerate the approval process that's required for new nuclear power plants. So, so Microsoft is going to build a nuclear power plant somewhere? <laughs> it feels like such a strange think... turn of events. They, they genuinely want to help others build new nuclear power plants. Oh, that's wild. Um, it also, you know, you've also done a lot of writing about microchips, you know, and how as they get better, as they get more efficient, hopefully they will take less energy. Is that is that sort of a fair assessment? Yes, that's been true for a long time. But unfortunately, you know, the force that was driving that, it's called Moore's Law, that is really over. So at this point, if you want more power, um, especially for AI and these big workloads, microchips are just getting physically larger and much more energy hungry. And you also kind of talk about the, the overall demand for microchips is only going to go up as these processors need basically bigger and bigger brains to do their thinking. That seems to be the case. If we're going to be incorporating AI into just all kinds of everyday tasks, like apparently Amazon, for example, is working on, uh, they call it Remarkable Alexa. So it's Alexa powered by generative AI, like ChatGPT or something. And, you know, it can hold conversations the way ChatGPT can. If we're going to get that in our everyday lives, in our cars, if it's going to be summarizing documents for us, you know, on Word or Google Docs, there's just going to be more and more demand, uh, you know, more chips using more power everywhere. Yeah, we did a segment the other week about um, how AI is getting into robot vacuums. Like it'll go over a stain and analyze what it thinks that stain is and then like go back to its dock and get the right cleaning tools. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's really, <laughs> really going to be everywhere. Uh, my favorite example is there's a trash can with AI that allows it to recognize your voice and open when you ask it to. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's such a strange. But then it also raises the question, is, like, my trash can listening to me? Like, just generally when I'm having conversations <laughs> in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah. I know. The CES show in Las Vegas just, like, wrapped up, and it seems to be one of the overarching narratives from that event was how AI is getting into everything. And you sort of wonder if we're, we're building all of this without, I don't know, full consideration of the energy we're going to need to power it. I think that we kind of are. I mean, I think the companies that have to build this, so Microsoft especially because they've partnered with OpenAI, Anthropic, um, Hugging Face, they are hyper conscious of the amount of energy that this requires because dealing with that problem, is, it's an existential threat for them. I heard an estimate this morning, uh, Kai Rizdal on Marketplace was talking about how it costs Microsoft $700,000 a day to run its generative AI operations. Um, you know, most of that is electricity, really. I mean, there are sunk costs in the computers. So for them to be able to make money on somebody who's paying them $20 a month, which is what it costs for, um, you know, the premium version of ChatGPT now, they've really got to deal with this uh, power utilization problem 
or they're just gonna lose money on this forever that is that's so wild yeah i wonder how they're making money i was trying to do the math in my head at 20 bucks a pop seven hundred thousand dollars a day like how many clients you need to be adding and like I'm like, that's a, that's a lot of zeros. That's, that's you know, maybe more people than we have on the planet that are interested in using ChatGPT at the moment. They're definitely losing money on it uh, every day right now. That was one reason that OpenAI had to partner with Microsoft. They needed that big infusion of cash. There are a lot of other ways that they can start to make money. I mean, a big thing that they're betting on is selling this service to businesses. So imagine that you just do something complicated with data. You're an insurance company or something. And you might just be paying them millions and millions of dollars a year to power something on the back end. I mean, I've talked to insurance companies that already have their own internal AI models so that, you know, if you get in a car accident and you immediately call and they're like, okay, download our app right away, start taking pictures of the damage. A lot of that's powered by AI. A lot of the insurance adjustment that's done in the auto industry is powered by, by AI because it really speeds up the process. That was Christopher Mims, a technology columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for your time today. Anna, thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're talking about a bra that could replace your annual mammogram. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. Many of us wear watches that track our heart rates. But what about a bra that could detect breast cancer? Researchers at MIT have created a flexible ultrasound patch that sits in the cup of your bra and could one day take regular scans, kind of like the way the Apple Watch takes frequent readings of your heart rate. Joining us now is Janine Daderverin. I hope I said that somewhat close to correct. A professor at MIT and the creator of this new technology. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you and your team at MIT have invented this wearable ultrasound patch that sits in your bra. And to me, it kind of looks like the outline of a cartoon rabbit with these like hexagonal pieces punched out in a honeycomb pattern. That's my best description of it. Do you have a better one? (laughs) Actually, you did describe it very well. In, indeed, it was inspired by um, by nature, the honeycomb structure in which you can, um, at a given location, you can scan the given tissue with 60 degree angles in a part from all the way from zero to 360. So if you have any anomaly within your tissue, you will be able to watch that tissue at the same location with no um, deflection at all, 
and and no pressure on at all and with no operator needing that you can see that anomaly from various angles and create a three-dimensional video which is extremely important when it comes to the medical setting because doctors often need to check these images with their bare eyes from the still images on the computer screen and oftentimes needs to compare your scan from two years back but with this technology everything will be uh, universally um, uh, scanning feature and it will be pretty um, uh, accurate and also the most importantly comfortable for the users who are gonna wear this technology yeah anyone who's ever had a mammogram knows that it, uncomfortable is sort of the the overarching theme of that time that you spend with your techno with your specialist but um so is it something that you envision like an apple watch that you wear every day and it just takes these readings or would you put it on once a month and get a reading and then take it off Exactly. This is the point that we are trying to figure out how frequently that we should wear this technology. But just to um, give a sense, one scan uh, with this technology will be cheaper than a cup of coffee, less than $3. Oh my goodness. So you can scan your tissue every other day, almost every day. It's, imagine it's like 365 data points in a year. Whereas with current mammography, Unfortunately, it's radiative. Yes, it works, but it's radiative. And if you have a dense breast, it will give most likely uh, inconclusive results anyway. But and you are you can scan your breast tissue every other two years because it's very risky. It's very radiative. And imagine two one data point in two years, whereas three hundred sixty five data points in a year. So with this technology, we are gonna create an AI based algorithm again, to give the doctors a better chance to identify what's going on with the tissue, uh, with the big data and with the pattern that can um, allow these patients and medical doctors to make a better assessment. And just to maybe elaborate a little bit more about the current standard uh, way of screening, as you pointed, mammography. Uh, but for most of the women, by the time you have your second mammography, as assuming the first one is clear, 40% uh, of high-risk women are developing high, uh, like uh, very aggressive phenotypes within these two scans, which is called interval cancer. And the survival rate decreases um, almost uh, to 22%. But with this technology that we offer, frequent screening and uh, um, easy way to wear every single day will increase your survival rate up to 98%. And this is um, kind of a dream uh, for the entire uh, globe. Yeah, even if you are high risk, say you have a lot of breast cancer in your family, I think they only do it once a year anyway. So like high mm. risk is once a year, uh, low risk is twice a year until you reach a certain age. And yeah. one of the things I find fascinating is that first time mammography patients are actually more likely to get called back for a second scan because there's no baseline of what their tissue should look like. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Uh, and uh, with the hope that we can, with this technology, not only for high-risk women, but overall women population, because we want to make this affordable. And as I said, it's like $3, less than $3. And every day you can wear it at home by yourself. It will also create a baseline. Imagine a map for um, 
the entire nation, especially for the women who have a barrier for this kind of technologies. We had no understanding what's going on in their body. And plus, we have 265 breast cancer drug lines right now in the market, but we don't have a way to do personalized treatment. You are given same drugs as I am giving the same drugs, but we are totally different people. So with this, we are hoping that we can also partner with pharmaceutical companies and check the breast tissue throughout the medication to create a better personalized uh, drug regimens for uh, uh, for the patients. Oh, you can watch how it shrinks and changes and like see what works and what doesn't work. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, how long does it take to do the scan? So once you put the bra on, do I have to sit still for a couple minutes or how does it work? Uh, the beauty of the technology, you don't need to do stay still and you can do your daily activities. And in terms of the timing, while you are sipping your coffee, you will get damaged like within sub seconds. <laughs> it's really easy. And the real time data will eventually be sent to an app on your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, but for now, it's it sounds like uh, it's hooked up to some sort of ultrasound machine to view the images. Right. Correct. The first prototype that we had just to give in sense for people, it's a huge refrigerator size of uh, image processing technique that we still use in the hospitals. But now in my team, we develop a much smaller one, a size of iPhone. And the second um, human trials are being conducted with that technology. And in a few months, you will hear about those results too. And our hope is really to make it even much smaller size of a chip, which can be attached to your bra itself and everything will be perfectly uh, portable. And it's pretty durable. There is no engineering um, kind of hurdles that we are facing at this moment. It's just a matter of time and funding. Have you tested how it works for women with implants? Hmm. We have not done that, but I assume there will be no issue because again, it's based on safe and proven, uh, proven, proved ultrasound technology. And uh, with the implants, um, I don't see any obstacles or any problems that we may, we may face. And it sounds like it would be safe for everyday use, unlike mammography. Yeah. Like even if you could get a mammogram a day, I don't think you'd want to physically, but it's just not safe because of the radiation. Correct. But for this one, it's no radiation. It's just a sound wave that you know, usually, you know, we get the skins when we were pregnant. And indeed, I, I gave birth to my first child 10 months ago, and I was trying this technology on my belly to watch my baby, to have a peace of mind when sometimes I feel like he was not moving. When I put the device, I could see in real time how my baby is doing. So the technology is extremely versatile. It can be used on any soft tissue, all the way from you know prostate to pancreatic, pancreatic cancer or brain or uh, the belly of the pregnant woman like me. And it's safe. I did use on myself while I was pregnant, and I and and there is no issue with that. And we pass all the FDA re uh, requirements in terms of the electronics part. I know you are in the testing phase, but have you caught? women in the very early stages in this testing? Um, yeah, actually, indeed, I first tried on myself just to convince myself how it works because it was a dream for me um, since 2015. I really wanted to make this device. And um, I have um, some lumps in my breast tissue because of a family history. And we also tried on multiple different patients who have 
you know, uh, the, the severe tumors or different types of lumps and aggressive ones, less aggressive ones, and um, and be cross-validated with the commercially available ultrasound technologies with a well-trained ultrasound technician. And it looks like, again, as we reported in our paper and patents, it's correlating very well and, and it's remarkably uh, comfortable. We also get the feedback from users. How do you feel and how does it work on you? We don't use a cold ultrasound gel in between the soft tissue and the technology. It's a it's a really a big thing because you have to wipe yourself after the treatment or the process. But this is really um, um, elegant in terms of the device design. I really care about how it looks, how it feels like, so that we can have a better adherence from uh, from from the users. And once actually, this is a nice thing that I would like to maybe by using your platform to have my voice to the everyone in the society. Right after um, the paper was published, I received amazing emails from women all around the globe saying that they want to be a volunteer, they have different uh, diseases, they have different stages. So it's, um, it's, it's an amazing hope as a young researchers that I have myself and my group members. So it's amazing motivation for all of us to keep going. And this is really, it sounds like from reading an article about it, a labor of love for you because you lost somebody to an aggressive form of breast cancer. And that's kind of, you were there in her final days and that's when you started sketching this idea. Right. And it was just like my aunt and um, initially it was just a way to relax her because it was literally her last 12 days and I had a chance to stay with her Um and it was devastating, not only for her, for all of us around her. And she was losing her strength, hope, uh, happiness, and health. It was really, really um, a, an unforgettable moment, days of moments for me. And um, it was a, it was a sketch, just a dream on a piece of paper. But now it's real. We can touch it. We can have it to stay, touch on people's body parts, and um, hopefully, like my aunt, many more women will not suffer anymore and use this technology and um, just continue their beautiful lives with their loved ones. And if there are women listening to all sides right now who are saying, my gosh, I would love to get one of these bras. I'd love to be in her testing. <laughs> is that even an option or how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So right now, we, as I said, we are finalizing the, the, the portable version of it and we file the patents. And the next move is to launch the company and go for more intensive human trials, which I will have a call for the public at that time. And uh, we will publish on the websites. And what is then, the website? So somebody um, can like circle back for that? Sure. It is uh, our group name, conformabledecoders.mit.edu. Or you, they can find me on social media. I will just publish it. Or they can simply look at MIT Media Labs websites. We will also publish it there. And uh, we will go for intensive human trials to get the FDA approval and then have this in the market. And I think it will be a, an effort of entire nation. And I definitely need um, um, amazing women to participate and give <laughs> us hope and motivation. It will be a remarkable way of to show um, um, the, the critical feedback that all participants uh, are, are going to give us. 
I feel like you're talking me into asking to participate as we're having this conversation. I'm like, maybe I should do that. Yes, please. <laughs> I I want to ask sort of a broader 30,000 foot view question of, you know, I ta- I kind of compared this a little bit to the Apple Watch that takes your, your pulse. Um, you know, the new version can do like pulse ox, which measures the oxygen levels in your blood. I kind of, how do you view this in the context of like this growing market for wearable health tech? Um, uh, the way that you are framing is actually, this is the same thing that I have in mind. Yes, we want this technologies all the way from simple ones to the more sophisticated ones to be wearable, to be more acceptable, more affordable. But at the same time, uh, in, in addition to the framework that Apple Watch has, I also would like this technology to be affordable by any. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe covered by insurance. Exactly. So this is um, most probably our buyers would be the insurance companies. And I hope that federal law will be in favor because it's a preventive screening technology like colonoscopy. And and also it will require, I mean, for our technology, as I can say, is... um, we need to educate all the way from um, breast cancer foundations and societies, medical doctors, radiologists, like many more people. Uh, but I, I would say, yes, this technology has a huge potential. By our humble calculation, only 12 million lives per year globally. It has that potential to save that amount of human's life. And why not? It can be just on the uh, on the shelf and not only for the high risk women, other types of women can also wear and check very personal part of themselves because it's a very highly dense tissue and there might be a, a, an, an anomaly at a given time because it's the number one breast cancer um, among women already. So variable technology will definitely leverage uh, the mindset, the peace of mind of these individuals and we could have a better way of living because my doctor says every shower, try to do palpation on your soft tissue, but I often time forget about it. Or sometimes I don't care about it because I get so busy. But with this, you wear it while you are sipping your coffee, you get it, get the results. It goes to the iCloud and then your doctor will be contacting you in with you in, in case there is an issue. So that variable aspect will um, change the patient journey map dramatically. Do you see it as replacing mammography or being used in concert with annual screenings? Yeah, I would say the later one. Uh, I don't, I don't, we don't want to change anything in the current uh, patient journey. Mammography is still a very strong methodology, but this technology will be an assistive technology, what we have already, and will alert mammography patients, like current mammography patients, or even decrease the frequency of the mammography. If there is nothing like concerning in your soft tissue, maybe you don't need to have the second mammography after second year, you may wait a little bit more. So it will also decrease the traffic in the hospital. So it's an it's a good way to alert medical doctors and patients at an early onset without going to do mammography or waiting for the mammography in between if there's anything will happen. So this is, just for early breast cancer detection through ultrasonography. So if if you have a, a mammogram and then six months later, perhaps this bra would catch something mm-hmm. that starts growing and arguably yes. catch it 
much quicker than that so it doesn't grow for that year and a half to your next one exactly so yeah exactly this is the this is the idea that we are offering that was Janine Dadervern did I do I hope I did you're great you're great (laughs) she's a professor at MIT and the creator of this new breast ultrasound bra thank you so much for joining me today thank you very much for hosting me take care We're going to take a break, and when we come back, CNET editor Russell Hawley is going to talk about Nightshade, a new app that could keep AI from reading your work. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. A new program called Nightshade has been developed to stop AI from using people's private work to train its algorithms. Here to tell us more is Russell Hawley, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Welcome back, Russell. Thank you. So let's talk about Nightshade. I I will admit I went down a real rabbit hole here, Uh, but this all starts with artists who are upset that AI has essentially been producing forgeries of their artwork and in some cases destroying their livelihoods that's correct it's important to understand amid all of the excitement for ai generated art that there are quite a few artists who have found things like their watermarks show up in ai generated art because the ai doesn't know any better um and you know not just not just brush stroke styles or things like that but like directly using uh you know references from from artists who have published work digitally to to try and make some money or to you know to express themselves in however way they they decided to that that ai has effectively scraped these and decided that they belong to the internet as a whole um so this this effort started in the university of chicago to see what would happen if digital images were slightly altered at the time of publish uh, that made it really hard for the AI to know what exactly those things were. Yeah, and what's what's fascinating is that it, so it makes these little changes, which hopefully you don't see with the naked eye because it's artwork and it's important, and it sort of changes what the AI sees, though, right? So the example I kind of came up with when I was trying to understand this is, like, let's say you paint hawks. You paint pictures of hawks, the birds. Well, Nightshade goes in and makes these like subtle little changes to your hawk prints that make them look like pigeons to AI. And over time, if the program takes enough of these like poisoned images, it's essentially like a poison pill, right? So the AI starts to think that hawks look like pigeons and you've really messed up this algorithm. Yeah, that's essentially it. You know, these the, there are supposed to be these subtle changes. Uh, one of my favorite examples from the the paper that was released by the University of Chicago was uh, making a handbag look like a cow. <laughs> you know, making these subtle changes so that it that you know the the AI was unable to distinguish between the two. So if you asked for a cow in a painting, uh, that you might within a couple of months get a leather handbag. 
you know, in your in your nice field um, in, instead of which the can be its own kind form. of art. <laughs> Not the art you were looking for. Kind of art. That's right. Yeah, I feel like there's already a pretty solid collection of AI getting things wrong uh, that you can kind of rummage through. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what this is. Uh, you know, if uh, if the if the AI tools are going to scrape the internet without the permission of the artists, then the artists uh, who are using this program feel that they do not have an obligation to make it easy for them. Yeah, and the creators of Nightshade also have this other app, which doesn't create poison pills, but it's supposed to make it really difficult for AI to see the true image, and it's called Glaze. And I thought that was interesting. It's basically altering the image in a similar way, but in a way that isn't, I guess, poisonous to algorithms. Correct. Yeah. So Glaze is is designed to essentially create a digital layer on top of the image that just makes it very, very difficult for the AI to identify what the picture is. They know that it's art. They know that there are certain colors involved, but the actual shapes don't necessarily come together to form coherent things that can be uh, previously identified. Um, so that's, that is a, a previous attempt that had been made to, to do this. And I think what we're going to see really, especially over the next year is a sort of back and forth, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the person who has built the biggest wall has not met the biggest ladder kind of thing, um, where the, the, you know, these, the, the artists and the AI are going to kind of battle back and forth. Um, and that's going to make it really challenging to know that the, the thing that you're using is a hundred percent reliable. Um, and until stuff like this comes to a close. And before we move on to the next topic, I want to kind of touch on the like the real world impacts of this, because I think when we're talking about digital art, sometimes people don't necessarily and I don't I don't say this in like a pejorative way, grasp the the impacts of it. So I think you can see this in, let's say, book publishing. So I'm going to take an artist that I think most people know, Andy Warhol. So he was a leading figure in the pop art movement and like his brightly colored Campbell soup can is probably something most people recognize. And if you've seen a couple of pieces of Andy Warhol, you sort of you know what they look like, right? You know, that's an Andy Warhol piece. And this is true in things, let's say, like illustrated book covers. So instead of cans of soup, Warhol would make really distinctive book covers. And you might look at a bunch of different covers and know which ones he designed. The trouble with AI in my opinion, is that it goes in and it takes Andy Warhol's book covers and it learns them and then it can create its own. And then somebody can just go create one that looks like a derivative of his work without ever paying him. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, an extreme example when it's someone who just has such an iconic art style that you can say, you know, give me this thing in, in the style of Andy Warhol. Um, but, you know, this, the same can be true of a ton of different art styles, um, not just when it comes to uh, things that are published digitally, but there is an enormous amount of really unique art um, in things like tattoo parlors, Yeah. Uh, you know, where it takes a, a, a certain degree of skill in order to identify all the different color layers that have to be added in certain ways uh, to, to create the art on your skin. Um, and, and AI has, you know, been challenging in that space as well. There, there are a bunch of different, you know, kind of uh, almost niche examples. But the thing about those niche examples is that they impact a lot of small businesses. Right. These people who freelance as artists, whether they make book covers, whether they design tattoos, whether they make art that you can just buy. Um, it is a real question, you know, if AI takes it and generates all these like replicas, like I've heard some people be like, well, I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm going to go drive for Uber or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it is a genuine challenge uh, when, when you're surrounded by folks who um, don't necessarily appreciate the value of creating the art so much as the end product um, is, is kind of an ongoing conversation in a lot of those spaces. 
So let's shift gears and talk about AI in your phone. So Samsung recently released uh, the Galaxy S24 Ultra, um, which says it comes with AI technology. So the same kind of AI in ChatGPT? Not necessarily the same kind of AI in ChatGPT. This is kind of a combination of technologies. The the one that stands out the most in the announcement is something that uh, both Google and Samsung are calling circle to search. Um, you know, reverse image searches have been a thing uh, that you've been able to do for a really long time where you can take a photo of something and put it in Google and it will show you other examples of that photo uh, that exists so that you can kind of understand the origin and, and things like that. But it relies pretty heavily on the entire image uh, being as, as close as possible to, to the, the images that have been found. This circle to search function allows you to pick specific things within an image and search for just those. Um, there have been, you know, kind of early versions of this where you can do things like take a picture of a plant, and there are a bunch of apps that will help you identify what that plant is. Um, you know, so this is a this is a variation on a technology that has existed for some time, but this is going to be something that you can do at any point, no matter where you are on your phone. So if you are uh, watching a YouTube video and there's a, a thing in the background that you don't necessarily, you know, you can't identify right away. Or if someone has sent you a picture and there's some something on someone's desk that you don't you don't identify, this allows you to just pick that specific thing. And the AI is supposed to do a really good job of cutting out uh, that thing from the image and searching for just that. So if you're at a botanical garden and there's like a bunch of different flowers together, you could pick the one that you want to know the name of. Although the botanical right. garden probably has the name, but like maybe you're hiking somewhere and you're like, what is this weird specific berry before I eat it? Yeah. So it's it's a way of taking some of the existing technologies that we've had and just making it so that it's it's just crazy simple for anyone to use because it's just dragging a circle over any image or text or or video on your phone. Uh, and and the AI is is supposed to be uh, good enough to to you know search for that thing and give you some pretty interesting results. Um, there was a set of demos when the phone was announced to show how this worked, but it's not something we've been able to fully test in the real world yet. Um, but as a as a concept, at a minimum, it makes the idea of reverse image search just a lot more user friendly than it is today. And I guess it also the camera got a lot better on this version. Samsung has worked really hard on its camera for a couple of years now. It's done so in such a way that has made it so that Apple stops referring to their camera as the best camera and instead refers <laughs> to it as the most popular camera, uh, which is a, a pretty interesting marketing switch. Um, but yeah, so what Samsung has done here is they've got a ton of cameras in the back of their phone. If you look at the back of a Galaxy S24 uh, Ultra, I think there are five lenses uh, in the back of this thing to do a ton of different things. And the software is now designed to... Uh, essentially take multiple pictures at the same time and use AI to, to fuse those pictures together to, to create some pretty spectacular results. There's also a slow-mo feature that I guess Im impressed your reviewer. What What is the slow-mo feature? Yeah, so, you know, phones have had the uh, ability to record in slow motion for a while now, but you have to go to the specific slow motion mode on the camera. You have to push the button to record like you would a normal video. And then there's a there's some editing, you know, kind of uh, magic that you do in order to only slow down the part that you want. Um, but you have to have that mode enabled in order to do that. What Samsung has done here is uh, made it so that no matter what video you have recorded, you can use uh, its artificial intelligence to add slow motion frames into the video. So it's essentially looking at, you know, one frame and another frame and kind of guessing what the middle frame would look like and generating that. 
so that the image that you are looking at is now, you know, kind of automatically slow motion. My daughters would probably love that. They create these videos where their Pokemon stuffed animals fight their Squishmallows and they exactly. do the battle scenes in slow-mo. So I bet they'd be big fans of not having to create a bunch of separate videos that get stitched together that way. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. So stuff like that is is more, you know, just kind of uh, ease of use. You know, the, the underlying technologies have been there on the phone for a while, adding frames uh, especially when it comes to things like motion blurring uh, are, are things that have been done in the past. This is just, uh, you know, kind of continuing that feature set for Samsung. Then we have Apple's virtual reality headset. It's called the Apple Vision Pro, and they advertise it as an immersive headset that would allow you to check messages, play games, watch shows. But at a price tag of $3,500, it's clearly not aimed at a mass audience yet. It's also important to know that that $3,500 is nowhere near the final price that you would pay for this thing. There are a ton of accessories that Apple is going to make optional, um, including things like uh, additional headphone straps and, and you know, kind of additional functionality for holding batteries. This is more than things. a MacBook Pro. Like, this is not a cheap toy. It is very expensive. And, you know, this is something, you know, Apple's VR headsets is something that the industry as a whole has been kind of holding their breath for for some time. And there are a couple of things that Apple has done here that they get very, very right. Um, you, you put the headset on and it's just very smooth. It feels very natural um, compared to uh, other VR headsets that are available right now, which are considerably less expensive. But um, th this is, you know, as far as technology goes, a, a very much a, a leap forward as far as the state of the art. Um, whether this is something you're going to see people actually use in the real world is something that is is yet to be seen. You know, on top of its additional, you know, kind of expensive price, um, there's not yet a ton outside of the demo that we've been shown that you can actually do with the, the headset. Uh, you know, the, the computer for this thing essentially lives uh, on your hip in a little box. Uh, and a lot of the things that we are we have seen in the demos that have been given so far are very fancy iPad apps um, that have been changed to make it so that they can you know kind of be used more organically. Um, but Apple's big thing with this headset is you can essentially replace your computer monitor with it. So you've got you know your web browser and and all the other apps that you would use just kind of floating in front of you with a, a keyboard down uh, you know at your at your you know kind of chest level so that you don't need uh, a, a big monitor in front of you. Um, but it's still a heavy computer that's on your face that would be really hard to wear for eight hours in a day to to get work done. I also think it would be it would be really jarring if a coworker came up and tapped you because you have no frame of reference like the way you might when you're sitting in a cubicle. If you're if you've got this immersive headset on, I feel like I would be like very panicked on a very regular basis when like coworkers came up to talk to me. So one of the safety features included in this headset, which does not completely address uh, your concern, um, is this sort of pass-through mode, where if, a, if another human being walks into the field of view where you're doing VR things, they actually appear uh, as though they oh, have okay. kind of stepped into the world <laughs> that you are in. Um, so you do actually have some, you know, kind of understanding of the world around you when you're when you're doing things, um, but it's not like a complete. It doesn't replace the field of view that human eyes have. So there's still like your periphery is is you know kind of fully occluded. Um, so some of that is possible, but uh, instead of you know the the shocking tap on the shoulder, you'll just be really surprised while watching a, a video on YouTube as one of your coworkers just sort of appears beside you. <laughs> if they're in the middle of the the video, yeah. It's, so this sounds like it's a very 
early stages. Like the people who are going to want to buy this are probably very early adopters, very tech heavy people, maybe like people like yourself, but it might be a couple of years before it becomes more mass market. That's right. And that's actually something Apple's been pretty upfront about is that this is not something that they expect to be in every home in the same way that an iPhone or an Apple Watch is or, or even a MacBook. You know, this is something that comparatively is going to sell, you know, compared to the rest of Apple's ecosystem is going to sell, um, at least in this first generation, not a ton of units. But the goal is to create this this high tech thing uh, that can be explored um, to figure out, you know, really what it would take for someone to want to wear this for extended periods of time. And maybe get a little lighter, like you said. I do think like a heavy set of goggles for eight hours a day, you might you might get a headache. That is absolutely true. No matter how nice the head strap is on this thing, it's just not something a lot of people are going to want to wear for a full workday. Do they see it changing how we watch movies? So they see it uh, as a way to change how we take pictures, not necessarily watch movies just yet. But one of the features that has come out uh, that you can use on just about any new iPhone now is uh, taking photos specifically for VR. It's only Apple's VR headset that it works on right now because that's how Apple works. Um, but the idea is it takes these stereoscopic photos so that you have not just a panoramic photo, but a panoramic photo with depth and, and sound and, and things like that. So that when you go and look at that photo, you are you feel as though you are standing right where you were when uh, the, the picture was taken. Oh, so you could wear it for a night out. I mean, you might look a little weird, but you could wear it for a night out and then like rewatch that night over and over and over again if you should feel so inclined. So capturing is actually going to be done on your phone. But yeah, you could walk around with this headset. Uh, and I'm sure within the next month, at least, we will see examples of exactly that happening somewhere in San Francisco. Oh, it could change the way like Instagram influencers do their like, show me your home or show me your apartment tours. <laughs> That's right. Although I, I'm not sure that was like the hope when Apple created it, that they would help influencers show off their living spaces. <laughs> not yet, but who knows? <laughs> That was Russell Hawley, the Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Thank you so much as always. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this hour of Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. Thanks so much for listening to 89.7 NPR News.